I'm Terry. And I'm Sarah. Welcome to Reading During Recess, a YA and children's book podcast for adults, where we relive our childhood one book at a time. Together, we'll explore classics, bestsellers, and forgotten gems of the literary world for kids and teens. Our upcoming episodes will attempt to answer important questions, such as... What does your favorite Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants character reveal about you? How did Stuart Little's human mother give birth to a human... mouse? And why do horse girls get so many books written about them? Keep listening for future episodes on Tuck Everlasting, TTYL, a series of unfortunate events, The Chronicles of Narnia, and The Alice Books. We'll do a deep dive into the books and their authors, assess how they hold up today, and what lessons they have for our adult selves. Sarah and I have been friends for many, many years, and early in our friendship, we bonded over shared love of Phyllis Reynolds Naylor's Alice series, uh, which we'll definitely be discussing in the future episodes. And also importantly, we'll be discussing how we realized that we were both fans of this series, and spoiler alert, it does involve um, a character peeing themselves. So since I'm a teacher and Sarah's a writer, we so often find ourselves reminiscing about our favorite and our least favorite books that we read as kids and teenagers, and we're just so excited to share that with you guys. Yes. Uh, So I'm Sarah. I'm a writer and an educator, and I recently got my MFA in creative writing, and this is what I'm doing with it. And I'm Terry, and I'm a first grade teacher, which means that I spent multiple thousands of dollars on an education degree so that I can be paid back far less to read picture books out loud. And I want to be clear, teachers like definitely do other stuff too. That just happens to be my personal favorite part. So we decided to talk about Matilda for our first episode. Matilda is a children's book that came out in 1988. It was written by Roald Dahl, who's a British novelist, also famous for Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, James and the Giant Peach, etc. The Witches. The Witches, iconic. Mm -hmm. He also wrote um, some erotic fiction for adults, which we will not be talking about. (laughs) He was also a wartime pilot in World War II and just an all-around weirdo. And we'll be discussing him later because there's a lot to unpack there. You have to admire someone who knows that they're just a straight-up freak and decides (laughs) to share that with children. (laughs) So, Matilda sold 17 million copies, and it now outsells all of Roald Dahl's other works. And I thought we'd start off this episode with a summary of the book, because since this podcast is for adults, it's probably been a little while since you all read Matilda. Matilda is the story of a young girl with prodigious intellectual gifts. For example, she's reading Charles Dickens novels by the time she's five years old. And in spite of her genius, her family is very unimpressed and basically hates her. For no clear reason. She has a brother who they do not seem to despise. Yeah. It's... Uh, I wouldn't say that they love him, but he's he's definitely there. Yeah, I would say that the child abuse levied against him is certainly lesser <laughs> than the child abuse levied against Matilda. Her dad is a crooked used car salesman. And her mother appears to be unemployed and plays bingo all day. I don't know if that's a British thing or a 1980s thing or... Or like something for us all to aspire to. Yeah. I mean, I would love to just play bingo all day. (laughs) One of my favorite things is that I think that this is an attempt to say that it's, like, far away 
but they always say that her mother plays bingo in a town eight miles away, which I think is such a British thing to share this concept of that being uh, like a noteworthy distance. Yeah. Like eight miles. Yeah, that that's is how very far specific. she schleps. Yeah, there, I have a lot of questions about the mom. I think she's a slightly more sympathetic character than the dad. I would agree. And I always got that sense, even as a kid reading yeah. the book. Which almost made it even so much sadder because you got this idea that there was maybe the slightest possibility of warmth mm-hmm. from this woman, but then it just it really plays out. Yeah, she does have one point in the book where she says to Matilda something along the lines of, most men are silly and don't mm-hmm. know as much as they think they do, and that's a good lesson for you. And I think that's a good lesson for all of us, and I would yeah. agree with Mrs. Wormwood on that one. Her parents, Matilda's parents, are basically pretty much irredeemably stupid, mean, and shallow. And we know this because they love watching television. (laughs) And television in this book, and in many of Roald Dahl's books, is Mm -hmm. a villain. This is an ongoing theme. Yeah. Roald Dahl should be grateful that he was not around for the rise of the smartphone, because I think that probably ultimately would have been what killed him. That's a good point. Lucy Dahl, one of Roald Dahl's children told NPR that, quote, Matilda was one of the most difficult books for him to write. It was also, I believe, the last children's book that Roald Dahl wrote. He died a couple years later. Oh, wow. I did not know that. And she said, I think there was a deep, genuine fear within his heart that books were going to go away, and he wanted to write about it. So that, I think, is very interesting. And I think he would be heartened to know that his book continues to sell very, very well. In fact, that we are now talking about it. Yeah. So you're welcome, Rold. <laughs> so anyway, back to our summary. Um, her parents love TV. Matilda does not. Matilda likes to read complicated novels about the human condition. And she often plays tricks on her parents to re- get revenge on them for their neglect. Most famously, probably the superglue incident where she puts superglue inside her dad's hat. And if you are on Twitter, you might have seen the Gorilla Glue woman who put Gorilla Glue spray on her hair instead of hairspray by accident and then had to get it surgically removed. And that's basically what happens in Matilda, except he deserved it. I would argue that Mr. Wormwood walked so that Gorilla Glue lady could run. (laughs) I would agree with that. I would agree with that. So thank you, Matilda, for that iconic moment in literature. It's a truly inspiring thing. She also hides a parrot in the chimney to convince her parents that their house is being robbed or is possibly haunted. Yes. And when they go on, when they go to take on the uh, attackers, Matilda brings a knife, which I think is a very zesty image of a five-year-old girl arming <laughs> herself with a knife to take on this parrot. Agreed. I actually had a question throughout the book, which is, has PETA ever issued a statement about Matilda? <laughs> Because between the parrot, too long. <laughs> between the parrot incident and the newt in Miss Trunchbull's glass of water, I feel like there's some some mild animal abuse going on here that Peta definitely should know about if they don't already. Well, eventually Matilda does get tired of terrorizing her parents and decides that she will instead start going to school, mm-hmm. uh, and that is where she meets uh, the beloved Miss Honey was her kindergarten teacher who just immediately recognizes that she's a genius 
And it's here in the story that you realize that the real villain of the story is not actually Matilda's parents, but Miss Trunchable, the tyrannical headmistress who hates children and regularly physically abuses them, uh, most famously by throwing them by their hair, putting them in a large cement cabinet with glass and nails on the inside called the Chokey. Mm-hmm. And uh, another classic, making one boy whose name is the wonderfully British Bruce Bogtrotter <laughs> eat an entire chocolate cake during an assembly. And about three quarters of the way through the book, Matilda realizes that she has the power of telekinesis, which is pretty cool. And so she uses that to get revenge on Miss Trunchbull. And Matilda tells Miss Honey about her powers. And Miss Honey tells Matilda that Miss Trunchbull is actually Miss Honey's aunt. Oh, my God. (gasps) And that Miss Honey was actually raised by Miss Trunchbull because Miss Trunchbull murdered Miss Honey's dad and made it look like a suicide. A very heavy thing for someone to share with a five-year-old. We'll get into the dynamics between Miss Honey and Matilda later, because I would venture to say it is wildly inappropriate. Much to unpack. <laughs> Speaking as a teacher of young children. Yeah. It's hard for that me under to... things I would not do. <laughs> and so when Matilda finds out about this tragic backstory, she uses her telekinetic gifts to play a trick on Miss Trunchbull, and she convinces Miss Trunchbill to skip town and give Miss Honey back her childhood home. And at the end of the story, Matilda's parents are moving to Spain because the cops have figured out that he is a crook. And Matilda asks if she can stay back and live with Miss Honey. And since they don't care about their daughter at all, <laughs> they are more than happy to let that happen. And that's how the, the story ends. Amazing that Miss Honey... Again, I think that we will get into this when we discuss their dynamics, but at 23 is like, yeah, (laughs) come on in. (laughs) I'm ready to be a mom. (laughs) Yeah, Miss Honey is an interesting one. So Matilda was pretty much well-received immediately. It won the Children's Book Awards shortly after it was published in 1988. An interesting fact that I found out when I was doing a little bit more reading about this book is that the early drafts of the story were very different than the one that we know now. And at first, Matilda was a wicked girl who used her powers to help her teacher solve her financial problems by fixing a horse race. And I would read that book. I would read that book, too. And also, the Matilda at the end gets killed, I think, by a horse. Even better. So, and Is apparently- she also five? I think so. Good God. Um, and I think Roald Dahl sent that draft to his editor, and his editor was like, absolutely not. <laughs> no, thanks. <laughs> We're going to pass on this one, Roald. <laughs> Please come back to us <laughs> with something that a child could read. I, I'm not sure that most young kids have the background knowledge to process uh, the fixing of a horse race. I think that one might have eluded me. <laughs> I agree. I would say that probably almost everything about that book was in poor taste. So, Which, again, I would still read. Yes. In 1996, a film version of Matilda was released, which was directed by Danny DeVito, who also starred as... Mr. Wormwood, along with Mara Wilson as Matilda and Pam Ferris as Miss Trunchbull. And we'll talk about the movie more later on, but it's um, it's a it's a favorite. A lot of people love it. And Matilda's also been turned into a musical. 
which I have not seen. But and frankly, which nobody asked for. No, but I would see it if I'm being honest. I read a really long New Yorker article about it yesterday, and it sounds like a good time. I am sure you did. <laughs> <laughs> so the next thing I wanted us to talk about a little bit is why do kids like this book? And this is something that we want to explore in all of our episodes. It's like, why does this book work? Why did we enjoy it as children? I think the first thing to note is that kids love weird shit. And so much. Kids are so much less sentimental than adults. And now that I am an adult, I love forcing sentimentality on children because it's just something that adults do. But I don't know. I, as a kid, and also I think every child I've ever met since, just has a deep-seated desire for chaos. (laughs) And, you know, there's a reason Roald Dahl is popular. It's because kids are uh, the gremlins. Mm Mm-hmm. Put it lightly. (laughs) I enjoyed the darkness in his books as a child, and I thought they were hilarious. I still do, actually. Like, I laughed several times at Matilda. Yeah. Insults are Mm. terrific because his characters are so... His good characters are so good. You know, Mm -hmm. they're so pure of heart and um, morally sound. And his bad characters are such caricatures you know, that he can just really lean into making them these (laughs) absurd, brutal people who say truly tremendous things. I annotated a few zingers this time when I read it. This one comes from the Trunchbull. She's talking to Rupert, who is a, a poor, poor soul who goes to her awful school. And she picks him up by his hair and says, you ignorant little slug, you witless weed, you empty headed hamster. You stupid glob of glue. And, you know, even Miss Honey hits them with a couple zingers. I mean, I want to be very clear. This is, we meet Matilda's, the rest of her kindergarten class, on day one of kindergarten, where Mm -hmm. Miss Honey is immediately like, all right, who knows their two times tables, which I think is already just, like, a criminal thing to ask a five-year-old. But also is giving them just a little bit of a heads up (laughs) about the whole admin situation at the school. (laughs) And she warns them, uh, she tells them, you know, never to answer back, don't argue with her. If you get on the wrong side of Miss Trenchable, she can liquidize you like a carrot in a kitchen blender. Which, I mean, wow. (laughs) I mean, they deserve to know. She, that's one thing that I actually really enjoyed about the book, rereading it as an adult, where I was like, wow, Roald Dahl really is the master of the simile and the metaphor. Yep. <laughs> you know, like it's just, he really didn't have to go that hard, but he did. He did. And he, he did, did it for us. Come on, guys. We got to start bringing these back, you know? I, um, yeah, I marked a few of my favorite, f- favorite comparisons. At one point, he says that Miss Trunchbull's face is like a boiled ham, <laughs> uh, quivering with fury, which is terrifying. I like when he implies, so one of the things we know that makes Matilda's mother villainous is that she dyes her hair, which is, Mm. of course, the trait of a villainous woman. Her dyed hair is a platinum blonde that is, like, reminiscent of um, a, uh, I think he very specifically says a female tightrope walker's tights at the (laughs) circus. And then in another one of her clever little um, pranks where she destroys her father's scalp, she replaces his hair tonic with her mom's hair dye and, and dyes his hair a color that Roald Dahl describes as 
more similar to a female tightrope walker's tights that have not been washed. Love that. Elsewhere, one of my favorite moments in the entire book is when he is describing the cook who cooks the gigantic chocolate cake mm-hmm. that Bruce Bogtrotter must eat. He says, the cook, a tall, shriveled female who looked as though all of her body juices had been drained out of her long ago in a hot oven, walked on to the platform wearing a dirty white apron. And then later, he says, the cook stood there like a shriveled bootlace, tight-lipped, implacable, disapproving. She looked as though her mouth was full of lemon juice. And that's one that actually gets to one of the other things that I really like this book upon reread is that it definitely panders to children in many ways, you know, like, for example, children are always better than adults, pretty much. They're smarter. They're funnier. Kinder. They're kinder. But he also doesn't he doesn't condescend to children which I enjoy. Like, he puts a word, like, implacable into a book that's for elementary schoolers, and it's like, you guys can figure it out. You can use context (laughs) clues. That's also what makes Roald Dahl's books have lasting impact, is that adults enjoy reading them with kids. Absolutely. I used to read this book every summer when I was a camp counselor. I think Sarah's exactly right, you know? These are the kinds of books that, like, families and teachers share with kids and they're fun they are fun and the darkness is is so over the top that it doesn't Mm -hmm. actually feel threatening there's at one point the kids at the school are talking about like how on earth can miss trunchbull get away with being this horrible Mm -hmm. and matilda i think is the one who observes and says it's because if you told your parents what was going on, they'd never believe you. Like, they'd never believe you that your teacher, like, flung you around by your pigtails. And I think that's also what makes the books fun, as opposed to terrifying, <laughs> is that it's <laughs> so an element of safety right. in, the, yeah. in the hyperbole. Exactly. Yeah, you the know that... teacher's probably never going to fling you around by your hair or put you in a shed that's full of glass. Probably. Probably. And this actually, I read an interesting Guardian article about Roald Dahl's books that was written by Hepzibah Anderson, which I think is a wonderful name. And she said, she, the article kind of explores why it is that kids like these books that are so dark. She talks about how many, many children's stories for a very long time have included darkness and evil in them, like going all the way back to Grimm's fairy tales. Oh my god, of course. And she says, child psychologist Bruno Bettelheim explained in his seminal study the uses of enchantment. The macabre in children's literature serves an important cathartic function. Without such fantasies, the child fails to get to know his monster better, nor is he given suggestions as to how he may gain mastery over it. As a result, the child remains helpless with his worst anxieties much more so than if he had been told fairy tales which give these anxieties form and body and also show ways to overcome these monsters. You know, and sometimes you overcome your monsters by realizing that there's so much pent-up brain power in your skull that you can attack them with newts and chalk. Not often, but for sure sometimes. Yeah. And I think that should be encouraged and celebrated. (laughs) The next thing that we should talk about is what surprised us upon rereading the book. So, Terry, you want to start with that? So one thing that kind of surprised me 
was that I always forget that the telekinesis happens so much later in the book, I think, mm-hmm. than uh, certainly much later than in the movie. And not a whole lot of time is given to, given to it. I don't think her, I don't think she ever uses it against her parents. Um, most of her... <laughs> Most of her revenge plots are organic and homegrown, mm-hmm. and she uses her own two hands to shove that parrot into the chimney. But yeah, that comes out um, a lot later. So the structure of the book almost always surprises me whenever I go back and reread it. It doesn't, the telekinesis doesn't happen until three quarters of the way through the book, um, which is quite different than the movie. That is surprising to me. It was also surprising to me when I. <laughs> When I was reading more about Matilda and like that quote that his daughter, she talks about how he wrote multiple drafts of the story and wasn't satisfied with it. And I honestly found it surprising that this was not like a first draft because (laughs) the telekinesis comes in so late that it really seems like he's like writing the book and he's like, oh, yeah, this is a good idea. Yeah, right. (laughs) And there's no foreshadowing of it at any point. And so that that was a little surprising. But, you know, it's actually, I think we're not meant to see it as the most central part of Matilda's character. Like, she's not, like, the telekinetic kid. She's the genius kid. And, like, this is one outgrowth of that genius. And then later on, as the book, when um, she moves up several grade levels and is more challenged in school, her telekinetic gifts go away because... Her brain power is being used in other areas. Right. Unlike in the movie, where she has a tremendous scene of her just bopping around the living room and flinging carrots at her brother. Yes. And also never loses her telekinesis, mm-hmm. which as a kid, I I don't know. For me, a true happy ending does not include losing telekinetic powers. I would agree with that. In the book, I was like, that is a raw deal. <laughs> I would so much rather still be in kindergarten, but also able to move things with my mind. But yeah, sure, go to... Go to 12th grade, I guess. (laughs) Can I just say I love the gamble that her librarian takes at the beginning. Um, So when Matilda is first becoming a reader, she goes to... Her parents have no books in the house. So she goes to the local library, and the first kind adult that we meet is Miss Phelps, or Mrs. Phelps, who gives her her first books. She goes through all the children's books first, and then she asks Mrs. Phelps for a grown-up book. And uh, Mrs. Phelps gives her great expectations, which... Having been given great expectations in ninth grade, I think probably would have just stopped me reading entirely. <laughs> yeah, it's a tough introduction to literature, <laughs> for sure. Yeah, all of the books that Matilda reads that are mentioned are very boring, I would yep. venture to Fair say. Fair amount of colonialism. I think some of her, yeah. you know, she's a big fan of, uh, sounds like, Heart of Darkness. Yeah, one of my annotations was, uh, <laughs> this is a very masculine canon. Yes, that is <laughs> well said. That's my MFA talking. <laughs> my first grade teacher talking is Mrs. Phelps failed this bitch. <laughs> this kind of goes back to one of the earlier conversations we were having about just how much fun Roald Dahl's prose is. And I had forgotten how much of the insults fixate on like dermatology specifically. He loves using the word boil and blister. Mm-hmm. At different points, people are referred to. Much attention to, is given to an 11-year-old girl's nose. Yeah, Hortensia. Her. Bless yes. her. He refers to people as a mis- miserable little gumboil, a superating <laughs> little blister. 
this clot, this blackhead, this foul carbuncle, this poisonous pustule. Pustule. Wasn't that a great word to be given at like age eight by Mm -hmm. this book? You know. (laughs) It could really spice up your Mad Libs. Oh, man. That actually kind of leads us into another thing I wanted to talk about, which is what is the most British sentence in this book? Because the book is aggressively British. I wanted to share some of those very British sentences with you all. So the first contender is... We've got a lovely telly with a 12-inch screen. (laughs) Um, Sorry to any British people listening to this. That was... (laughs) deeply offensive (laughs) but continue on please do another absolutely steady on the boy said i mean dash it all headmistress said by uh bruce bogtrotter (laughs) in the moments before he is forcibly fed a lot of cake miss honey looked at the plain plump person with the smug suet pudding face who was sitting across the room Matilda and Lavender, standing in the corner of the playground during morning break on the third day, were approached by a rugged ten-year-old with a boil on her nose called Hortensia. Which is an amazing name, Hortensia. It is. And she's a real champ. She calls them stupid in, like, the first five minutes of talking to them, which is, I think, something people should always do to young children. (laughs) Yeah, actually, one of my favorite moments in the entire book is when Hortensia is telling Lavender and Matilda about the trench bowl, and then she tells them about a prank that she pulled on the trench bowl. Um, And (laughs) Lavender and Matilda are awestruck by this older student who has done this amazing thing. And her boil is then referred to as a badge of honor on her nose. Amazing. I think is a lovely turn of phrase. What a great sentiment for all for all you tween girls out there. <laughs> Respect just, that's the just, acne. It's just body positive roll doll. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and of course, you know, shout out to the food mentions in this book. Um, from page 139... Lunchtime came. Today it was sausages and baked beans. Lavender's favorite, but she couldn't eat it. Sorry, that was she couldn't eat it. Yeah, unfortunately, it's a audio medium, so we can't do subtitles, which might be helpful when Terry's doing her accent. But uh, thank you, Terry. What you're talking about? I think that I bet you guys probably couldn't even tell. I actually am from Virginia and (laughs) not from every county in England, which, and I think I covered at least like three. Between those five. I'm sorry, I have to bring us back to, we've got a lovely telly with a 12-inch screen. Wise words spoken by Mr. Wormwood, which I I think is a strong contender for the most British sentence, but I also think is um, possibly just the most 80s sentence (laughs) in the entire book. I mean, what a sell. We have another segment called The Book Was Better. Because usually the book is better than the movie, I think, as a general rule. And I would I would say that the book is better in this case, too. But the movie is amazing. I mean, Mara it has Wilson. Danny DeVito in it. Danny DeVito yep. does a great job. Mara Wilson is a little queen. She I, raised us, really. Yeah. I mean, I know we are, I don't know, what, five years younger than her, but my point stands. Yeah, I think so. And I thought the additions to the plotline worked well. The telekinesis is uh, not dropped in like an afterthought, which I think makes sense in the context of the film. But mm-hmm. uh, I do think it's a it was a mistake to set the movie in America. 
because, well, first of all, I enjoy reminders that British people are also tacky because <laughs> I feel like Americans really are universally despised, rightfully so, for our tackiness. But I, that's something I enjoy about, like, you know, Love Island and Matilda is the reminder that British people also can be horrible and have no taste. And so I think it was a missed opportunity to not set the movie in England. Also because, like, the very British dialogue and names feel weirdly out of place in, like, this California setting. They do. There's so much to be said for for a little bit of this. <laughs> In your, in your films. Yes. Also, you know, okay, questions about Quentin Blake, who has mm. illustrated every single Roald Dahl book ever. Are they related? Do they have some kind of, like, blood oath? It does, was he allowed to do anything else? I think that there is so much connection uh, between Roald Dahl's books and Quentin Blake's illustrations. Mm -hmm. And for those, I realize that this is, again, a not a visual medium, but you may know Quentin Blake from every Roald Dahl book and his insanely squiggly kind of slapdash illustration style, which I think just has so much charm mm -hmm. and is just such a good match for Roald Dahl stories. I don't know, on a few instances where I have like come across a Roald Dahl book with different illustrations, there is a loss. <laughs> So as as much as I love the movie Matilda, I am going to need an animated film in classic Quentin Blake pen and ink chaos style. Yeah, I agree. It does add so much to the books and also gives the impression that all of these stories are happening within the same universe. Yes, which literally where else could they happen? So something that I wanted to talk a little bit more about, too, is the things that we notice on rereads that we didn't notice as children, which is going to be obviously a running topic in this po in this podcast. Miss Honey. <laughs> what is up with Miss Honey? I she's very nice, but frankly, that's it. She doesn't. That is it. Well, Sarah, you also forget um, that physically, if one, hang on, very important that I read this word for word, her body was so slim and fragile, one got the feeling that if she fell over, she would smash into a thousand pieces. So she also has that going for her. Yeah, so it sounds like she has some sort of horrible genetic condition, maybe. <laughs> yeah, Miss Honey, I mean, she's obviously a very... She's a victim of Miss Trunchbull, like we said, like she was Miss Trunchbull's niece and Miss Trunchbull raised her. And she is, um, Miss Honey is living in abject poverty, which I didn't really pick up on as a child because I was so right. taken by how adorable the cottage seemed to be that I didn't realize that she didn't have running water or mm -hmm. literally any possessions. No bed. There's straight up not a bed. And I remember as a kid, and I guess it's because, I don't know, tell me if you agree with this, but because, like, I feel most children have this escapism fantasy in their head about ways in which they would live alone. Mm -hmm. um, and Miss Honey lives this out. She has a little, like, gas camping stove that she uses to make her food for what it is. And as a child, I thought this sounded like the coolest place in the world. And then on the reread, like Sarah said, there is no running water. There is no bed. She owns three boxes, which serve as two chairs and a table. And this is what I wanted for myself. I was like, all right, cottage core. 
the dream. <laughs> but my favorite thing though is that um is that Matilda is like at first kind of, you know, taken in because it's in a beautiful pastoral setting, you know, it's it's like a, a farmer's cottage and stuff. And Matilda's like, ah, oh, cute, you know? <laughs> and then there's this scene where Miss Honey is like, I'm gonna make you like, you know, we can have some tea that's British snack. <laughs> so she, and she gives her bread and margarine. And it's like at that moment when Matilda's like, oh, she is poor. <laughs> She doesn't even have butter. Right, what's all this then? <laughs> essentially her response. Yeah, she also is like, this honey is very vulnerable. and Shockingly so. Appears to have no adult friends, which is perhaps why she divulges this horrifying and deeply distressing story to a small child. And I'd just like to remind Miss Honey that just because a five-year-old can read really well it, mm-hmm. it doesn't necessarily mean that you should tell them about your father's murder yeah yeah i think there's a a quote in the book where she says something like that you look like a child or something but you're she basically implies that she is not a child which you know again inaccurate but yeah she she really uh really drops a lot on her and i guess it ends up working out for the best for both of them but it does feel inappropriate. Yeah, it's because it is. Also, as someone who is 25, being a 23-year-old friendless teacher, which, you know, I only hit two of those points, <laughs> but becoming the adopted mother of a five-year-old, no. <laughs> Couldn't be me. One <laughs> of the things that surprised me most upon rereading was that Miss Honey is younger than I am, which I found Gross. distressing. Yeah. No, thank yeah. you. No one is actually supposed to be younger than me. Ah, here it is. Although you look like a child, you are not really a child at all, because your mind and your powers of reasoning seem to be fully grown up. No. Mm, No. That's that's bad logic. And to any kids hearing this, if an adult ever says anything like that to you, please run and tell someone immediately. Yes. Not to get serious, but seriously, guys. (laughs) Don't tell kids they're not kids. No. We should probably get into... Our next segment, which is called Your Fave is Problematic, Mm. because I'm expecting that most of the books that we read as children probably have some parts of them that didn't age super well, or that honestly probably were not even appropriate at the time. So I was interested in the differences between Mrs. Honey and the Trunchbull Specifically, their physical. Let's bring in the mom in there too. Mm. You know, I think we got to get Miss Wormwood in there too. Yeah. Because yes, as Sarah says, the physical attributes of the two, the three, I don't are so prevalent and seem to reflect so much about Mm -hmm. who they are as people. You know, how do you unpack the differences between uh, beautiful, fragile, pale, bony (laughs) Miss Honey and angelic Miss Honey Mm -hmm. and horrible, big old hag, Trunchable, who yeah. is athletic, which we all know is one of the worst things a woman can be. I marked on page 67 where the description of the Trunchbull really comes in. Also important to note that she's often not even Miss Trunchbull, that she is the Trunchbull. Mm-hmm. You know, I think the way that her gender and femininity is just completely erased is very intentional. Yes. So... 
he says, she was a gigantic holy terror, a fierce tyrannical monster who frightened the life out of all the pupils and teachers alike. There was an aura of menace about her even at a distance. And when she came up close, you could almost feel the dangerous heat radiating from her as from a red, red hot rod of metal. When she marched, Miss Trunchbull never walked. She always marched like a stormtrooper with long strides and arms a swinging. When she marched along a corridor, you could actually hear her snorting as she went. And if a group of children happened to be in her path, she plowed right on through them like a tank with small people bouncing off of her left and right. Thank goodness we don't meet many people like her in this world, although they do exist and all of us are likely to come across at least one of them in a lifetime. If you ever do, you should behave as you would if you meet an enraged rhinoceros out in the bush. <laughs> Climb up the nearest tree and stay there until it has gone away. I'm gonna actually call out Rodal on that one. I have never met anyone like Miss Trunchbull. Shocking. I guess I'm only 25, so it could still be ahead of me, but... <laughs> well, don't forget, at 25, you're already supposed to be the parent of a seven-year-old, so... <laughs> That's true. Yeah, and, and I mean, I'm, I'm kind of of two minds on this, because, like we said before, his ability to fixate on physical appearance really opens up a lot of avenues for characterization and figurative language and metaphor and simile and also humor that I think is really effective for children and i'm you know a real delight yes but the big however (laughs) is that as an adult woman i don't really love that these are presented as the two options for womanhood you can or you can also be the trashy bingo playing mother yeah there's definitely um yeah i mean you really can't miss like the ties to weight yeah size in this you know Mm -hmm. he talks about Oh, man, the massive thighs which emerged out of the smock. Her ugly clothing. Mm -hmm. Speaking as someone who wears ugly clothing, I do not inherently feel (laughs) that is a moral failing, but... That's true. Something that comes up in Roald Dahl's books a lot is that you can... You can tell if someone is a good person or not by looking at them. Yes. If they're ugly, they're bad. Yep. Which isn't just in Roald Dahl's books. That's a lot of children's books. I will say this, though. No hint of this in this book but if you've ever read the twits that's another really really fun rolled all book but Mm -hmm. um he does have like this one pretty pleasant line about how you know you can have a crooked teeth or a big nose both of which i have and that if you are pure of heart and kind that your beauty will shine out of you and you will still be beautiful but that even if you are otherwise aesthetically pleasing you are garbage on the inside congrats you're uggo uh, so, you know, read the twits if you want to pick me up about your own looks. But <laughs> yeah, Matilda, Matilda sets some pretty clear physical standards for what makes a bad woman mm-hmm. and what makes a good woman. And on a serious note, it is a bummer to see um, athleticism and a rejection of femininity as mm-hmm. being a, a moral failing. I would agree with that. And I think even darker than that, um, something that has to be addressed, I think, in an honest conversation about Roald Dahl's work mm-hmm. is that he has a history of making... He's dead. But he had a history of making... <laughs> sorry. dead. My condolences, if you weren't aware. <laughs> But he's been dead for a long time. He, when he was alive, unfortunately made some very anti-Semitic comments and interviews and um, some book reviews. These statements, I'm not going to 
repeat them because why would I do that? But you can Google them if you want to know more about it. Um, they are not a secret. And they also don't really appear to have affected his career at the time or honestly had much of an impact on his legacy, except for the fact that um, mm-hmm. he was supposed to get a stamp made of him and then that didn't happen. But other than that, sans the stamp issue. His family recently released a statement apologizing for the anti-Semitic comments, which whether or not that's useful, I think is something to be debated. A lot of people were frustrated with it because it just felt like a PR move because Roald Mm -hmm. Dolph's books were getting a lot of film and movie deals and it felt a little too little too late. And also, um, it's my opinion that apologies should be matched with action and from what I can tell they don't appear to be doing much with that apology other than posting it on the internet so mm-hmm. and rolled all the spineless coward just keeps on being dead yeah so <laughs> he hasn't even tried to fix it but no on a very serious note it is true that apologies without action and without support yeah they ring hollow They definitely do. And I think it's honestly surprising to me when I was reading about this that there isn't more, isn't more conversation about it. There hasn't been a real reckoning with his legacy as it relates to this or how these themes have permeated his books. And that's something that I think more exploration is needed on. When he died, the obituaries and the major newspapers didn't mention the anti-Semitism which seems like an oversight. And so that's, I think it's it's sad when an author isn't able to be a role model for the kids who love their work. I also wanted to explore a little bit briefly about where I see Matilda's influence in some other media. Like when I was reading the book, I got major Dursley vibes from Harry Potter. 100%. Yeah, my dad. I remember my parents strongly. Yeah, <laughs> called out Harry Potter for mm-hmm. basically ripping the Dursley experience straight from Matilda. Yes, I mean you could say that Harry's cupboard under the stairs was just a chokey without glass. You could say that, and it's like you know why was there no glass? Yeah, you know if you're gonna do, you know Matilda says it herself in the book. If you're gonna, if you're gonna. Do something wild. Go whole hog. Dursley should have just glassed him up. (laughs) Sorry, but I digress. (laughs) Yeah, so I think that is one major place where I see Matilda's influence. And also I was realizing that Eleven from Stranger Things is basically, like, very Matilda-y. Interesting point. Yeah. I hadn't even thought about that, but now that you mentioned it, I can see it. Yeah. We love a a telekinetic queen. (laughs) And uh, I think you could say that their powers are both rooted in their trauma. That's the source. So we'll end every episode with a personal rating of the book. In this case, we will assess how many chocolate cakes to give Matilda from a scale of 1 to 10. And you know what? I'm going to give it 8 out of 10. But you have to eat them all right now. Thank you, Terry. And so for those of you who don't speak British, Terry said that she would give the book eight out of ten cakes and you have to eat them all right now. I would echo Terry's rating. We won't always agree, but today we do. I think Matilda's a solid eight out of ten. Go on down to your public library. 
Get yourself a copy of Matilda and put Roll Doll at ease and assure him that books are here to stay. <laughs> yeah. Turn off the telly. Put that 12-inch screen. Make yourself something other than a TV dinner. Yeah. Or don't. I felt like that was an unnecessarily harsh take on people who microwave all their food, <laughs> i.e. me. But... <laughs> So um, thank you all so much for listening to our first episode, and we hope that you will tune in for all our future discussions. Please rate and subscribe. It helps other people find our podcast. And you can also find our show on Twitter and Instagram at reading underscore recess. And you can email us at readingduringrecesspod at gmail.com. To all you telekinetic five-year-olds out there, stay reading.